following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So on those mornings, I wish we would just keep singing, actually. I think I've been more blessed by that than I have by, been by anything in a while here. That was just a great truth in those songs, just thinking about how firm a foundation our souls, though all hell should endeavor to shake... I never, no, never, ever forsake. Like, just think about that. It doesn't matter what Satan, this world, our own sinful hearts bring against us. God has made a commitment to us. He has loved us before the foundation of the world and will love us no matter what. <laughs> Nothing will shake his love. That's just a beautiful truth. So it fits very well with even what we're looking at this morning. We're going to move on into the next section here in Mark 14. We're going to be reading verses 32 to 52, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, I, all of your word is inspired. All of it is, is your truth given to man, and we should no doubt tremble before every word of it. But for some reason, at least in my own heart, there are passages and sections that seem to have a a greater sense of that feeling than others. And this is one this morning where I feel like we are, we are in deep waters here. 
we are witnessing, participating in something that has eternal consequences and reveals amazing, almost unimaginable things about you. And I don't know how to proceed into it. I don't I don't know how to accurately communicate the depths of what we're seeing here, and I don't know that any human truly can. I, your spirit has to do this this morning. Father, you have to apply these truths and these moments into our hearts and our lives in ways that no, none of my words ever would be able to. I, and so I come confessing my weakness. I come expressing my confidence, though, that your word is powerful, and I pray that it will have a powerful effect on our hearts this morning as we gather around it. Jesus, may we see you in your agony here and be changed by it, we ask. In your name we pray. Amen. There was a line in one of the songs we uh, sang just a moment ago. Uh, I didn't even think about it when I was putting together my notes, but uh, it was in the last song, uh, Jesus paid it all, the one before that, where it said, Behold your maker lying on the ground. And I want you just to pause for a moment and think about that. The creator of this universe, the one who made the very dust on which he was lying, lay prostrate on the ground in agony in this scene that we have just read. Where I started my notes, not on that comment, but right along with it was, I feel like I said this recently, and maybe if I did, I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but there was a real sense for me this week as I was studying this passage that I felt like we were intruding upon holy ground here. And again, I'm not trying to emphasize one section of the scripture as having more significance or value than others. It just, this isn't just any other section. These are, these are deep waters that we have been in, and, and I want to try as best I can to communicate some of that to you this morning, though I feel very ill-prepared to do so. As you'll recall, we've been in chapters 14 and 15 here for a few weeks, and our plan is to cover all of chapters 14 and 15 before we get to Easter. And so to do that, I've broken, broken that section up into these five scenes as we're walking towards March 27th. And we just spent three weeks looking at the first of these five scenes, Jesus in the upper room. And we, you know, I think you probably recognize this. We didn't even begin to plumb the depths of all that was there in that section in those three weeks, but I hope at least in what little we did cover, you got a better sense of, of what's going on there and why that section is so significant, and, and we're hopefully convicted by the Lord through that. And today we're going with Jesus into this next scene, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and this is where Jesus will speak his final words to the disciples, at least I should say his final words here in Mark. After this point in this scene, never again in Mark's gospel will he speak to them directly uh, in the text here. So th this, is, this is it for him and the disciples. This is where his betrayal occurs. This is where he's arrested. And as I've already kind of communicated, I've been uncertain all week long as to how to take us through this. I decided early on that I was going to go through it in one sitting here together today, just if nothing else for time's sake. But, but there's so much here and, and there's so much to focus on and see and to stop and meditate on. I'm telling you, we could probably spend several weeks in this and wouldn't even then begin to scratch the surface of 
of what's here. And so I'm going to do my best just to give you a taste, okay? It's, it's going to be a poor taste, but it will be a taste nonetheless of what I think you should go home today even and just get on your knees with your scriptures open in front of you and reading the section again and looking at it and just letting what is happening here just wash over you and causing you to go back to our Father in thanksgiving and praise and in reliance on his Son. And so to try to do all of that in a way that I think will focus us in the the most straightforward path, I have chosen to draw our attention to one word this morning. It is not a word that is in your text, but it is a word that runs throughout it in a sense. It's an idea, I should say, that runs throughout it. And it's the word conflict. Conflict. This scene is marked by conflict. And since my guess is that the majority of you in this room, not everyone, and so for you, if you don't have a, a good sense of familiarity with this passage, I'm sorry, but since the vast majority of you do, I'm not going to address a lot of the little details that we see in this passage, and I'm even going to ignore a few of the bigger details as well, because I want to get our attention back to this concept of conflict that is overarching this moment in time, so we can put all of this, of what's happening here in the garden together in such a way that it it makes us just stand in awe of Jesus, okay? That's, that's kind of where I've been this week and where I want to take you as well. So let me be clear as to how we're going to do this, because I'm not going to waste much time by an introduction. Um, I have arranged three conflicts that are visible in this section in terms of largest to smallest by visibility. What I mean is, if you were standing there in the garden that night, if you were watching, if you were in the bushes behind a tree peering into what's going on there, there would be one conflict that would seem visibly to be the largest, to be the main one that's apparent. There would be a second one that would be smaller than the first, and there would be a third one that would be last. So I've arranged them in that order in terms of their visibility, their significance in that sense. However, they are at the same time arranged smallest to largest in terms of actual significance. The thing that would first grab your attention if you're there that night is not actually the biggest thing going on. The second thing is, is even less or is a little more important, but not as important as the last one. And so I've arranged them smallest to largest also in terms of significance. And because of that, what I'm planning to do here in the next few minutes together is to walk through those first two relatively quickly so that we can spend time on that third one, what would seem to be the smallest, but what was in reality the greatest, and try to really understand that and, and just let the Lord speak to us through his word. And so with no further ado, let's jump in. Conflict number one is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that is finally playing out here in the garden. Mark sets the scene for us simply by telling us that they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane sounds so exotic to us. We've heard it so many times, we've never really thought about it. It almost sounds romantic of sorts. But in Aramaic, the word itself just simply means oil press. That was it. It was located on the western side, near the base of the western side of the Mount of Olives, and it was the place where the growers, the farmers, would bring their olives down to press to get the olive oil that would come from them. That was it. It was close to the city. At night, it would have been empty. 
And this is where Jesus goes with his disciples to pray. And the reason for his uh, retreat to this location is made plain by Jesus himself. And I'll address it more when we get to the third conflict, but just to note it now, he tells Peter, James, and John that he is greatly distressed and troubled. This is why he's going here. That his soul is sorrowful even to death, and he wants to pray, and he asks them to come and pray and watch with him. And the reason for this distress and sorrow is that his hour has finally come. And, and if you're not clear on what that is referencing, he's not referring to a specific hour in time as if on a watch. He's referring to this moment where finally all that he has been expecting, all that he knew was coming, is coming to a head, and, and he's about to walk into it. And so he spends some time in prayer. And after three episodes of prayer, as you heard in the story or are familiar with, he tells his disciples, it's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, Mark tells us, while he is speaking those words, I mean, he's being literal as he says, it's now. While he is still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And by telling us who this crowd is from, Mark is, is trying to remind us of the larger context that has been brewing now since really the beginning of this book, of this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Remember all the way back, was it chapter 3? I believe now I should have looked it up. I thought I would just remember it. In chapter 3, I think it was, where they decided early on they were going to, wanted to destroy him. I mean, he had barely gotten started in his ministry, and already they decided to destroy him. In chapter 14, though, if you look at verse 1, they make it very clear that their plan is to arrest him and kill him. They don't have a reason. They don't have a charge. They'll figure out something to justify those actions later. But their desire is to arrest Jesus and kill him. And now is their moment. And so Mark continues. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I'll kiss is the man, seize him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, seized him. One of those who stood by drew a sword, struck off the servant of the high priest, or struck the servant of the high priest cut off his ear. John tells us this was Peter who did this. The man he attacked was named Malchus. And Jesus probably, <laughs> I can imagine him, I can picture him as I have tried to picture this scene a lot this week. I can picture him stepping into the middle of this, putting a stop before this turns into a sword fight. Not that the disciples would have fared well in that because they had two swords only. But anyway, I can see him stepping in and stopping and he, he heals Malchus's ear, Luke tells us, and he chides Peter and and everyone must have been pretty taken aback by this because as you read each gospel writer's account of that moment where Jesus is stepping in here, it is very clear that the person in charge is Jesus. It's very clear that he's the one. He's like, guys, stop. He says this, he says this, he talks to them, he talks to them, and, and everything continues. So Jesus is very clearly in charge of the situation. He says to them after all of this has finished apparently, have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And by they all, Mark is meaning the disciples, right? When they see that Jesus is determined to give himself up to these men, they flee. Pretty much, end of story. Except for this one little comment at the end, 
Mark adds this detail that no other gospel writer, or New Testament writer for that matter, ever mentions again. It's about this young man who was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth, and when the, the guards try to seize him, he runs away naked, leaves the, the clothes in his hand. And everybody asks the question, why is that there? Who is that? What? And I don't know. Nobody knows. A lot of people think it may be Mark himself putting his own biographical comment in there as if maybe he was kind of watching nearby, and he may have very well been. But it's just conjecture. It's an interesting conjecture, but I can't help you beyond that. Regardless, what you see here is, is the moment where this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that has been brewing since the beginning has been growing, growing, growing. It finally here comes to a head. This has been their plan from the beginning. They've been trying to destroy him since chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. They've been trying to arrest him and kill him for some reason. This is the full force of the religious establishment of Israel, of the, of the power structure of Jesus' day falling now on Jesus. This conflict will lead to his death, okay? Everybody understands that one because that's the visible one. If you're standing in the garden that night and you see a group of men with swords and clubs coming to capture one guy, you can figure out, even if you know nothing else about it, uh, something's up, right? <laughs> you're, you're that smart, at least, to figure that one. Easy and short, we're done with conflict number one. Conflict number two, though, is not quite as visible. It's more visible than the third, but not as visible as the first. And this is the conflict within the disciples, the conflict that is within the disciples. If we go back through the text again, you'll note that one of the details of Mark's story that really stands out throughout the scene is Jesus' interaction with the disciples through these moments. And this is it. This is the end of his interaction with his disciples here in Mark's gospel. And I would start with just the most obvious observation of them all, and that is that he takes them with him. I mean, he already knew what they were going to do. He had told them as much in the upper room. He knew they were going to abandon him, that they would flee. But still, he takes them with him, and he calls on them to watch and pray with him. And his focus, for reasons that I cannot answer, seems to be mainly on Peter, James, and John. As they come into the garden, he leaves the other eight behind, and he takes these three with him deeper into the garden where he will talk to these three alone. And it is to these three alone, it seems, that he reveals or begins to reveal the agony of his own heart. And I mean, just try to hear these words, if you can, with the ears of the disciples. I mean... Imagine Jesus, this man that you have been walking with, following, listening to, learning from. Imagine Jesus looking at you, clearly distressed, clearly something is wrong, and saying, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. I mean, what would you do if, if your spouse said that to you? What would you do if your child came and said, Mom, Dad, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. I mean, you would feel sympathy. You would hopefully be troubled with them. No doubt, just seeing the distress of someone you knew and love would cause you to feel all the same emotions that I hope and just assume that the disciples 
felt themselves that night. I have no doubt, because I just can't believe them to be so unfeeling. I have no doubt that the disciples felt much the same way for Jesus. He, he goes off to pray, but when he returns, he, he doesn't find them praying or watching. What does he find them doing? Sleeping, right? Three times this will occur, and I'm not going to go through each of the episodes because they're all the same. Three times he finds them asleep instead of doing the very thing he asked. And he says to Peter directly, though I assume it would apply to all three of Peter, James, and John equally, but he says it to Peter directly, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And again, I don't know that he means a literal hour, just could you not watch with me? Could you, could, uh, watch and pray, he says to them, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that, that last phrase is one that we know very well. We quote it, and you even hear unbelievers quote it sometimes. But, but often we forget its context. That's, that's in the context of the garden, of these men who have a responsibility to be watching and praying on their own, who I think desire to, but are failing. Je- Jesus knows that the hour of testing has arrived. And I want you to understand this part here very carefully. That hour of testing has come not just for him, but for the disciples as well. I think this is a detail we forget. That they themselves are about to enter into temptation. And when you hear the word temptation, I think we've been programmed as American Christians to just automatically assume that temptation equals sin. Temptation does not equal sin. It doesn't. Jesus himself is tempted, yet without sin. So temptation does not equal sin. Temptation is the moment, though, where you are tested as to where your allegiances truly lie. They themselves are about to be tested just as Jesus is going to be tested, and the only way to face such testing is through prayer. And the conflict within them is revealed by Jesus' final statement here when he says the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus seems to acknowledge that they have good intentions. Good desires in regards to the hour at hand. When you saw that yourselves in the upper room, did you not? When he said, listen, some of you are going to abandon me. What did they say back to him? Not me. I'll never, I'll die with you. I will never abandon you. Do you think they were like purposefully lying to Jesus? I don't think so. I think in their hearts, they genuinely believed that that was true. That they would never walk away from him. That they would die with him if needed. You know, it's easy to profess uh, one's undying allegiance to something when you're not facing death in front of you, but when all of a sudden there's a group of men with swords and clubs from the most powerful people in the land who can kill not just you but your family, that's a whole other question. A lot of us are very strong and courageous as long as we're safe in our homes, but not so much when the rubber meets the road. In verse 50, you see the end of this internal conflict. The first conflict was external. This one's internal. You see the end of this internal conflict within the disciples when forced to choose between their allegiance to Jesus and their own lives. What do they choose? Their lives. They all fled. They all left him. So the hour of testing came for them. And just as Jesus told them, they failed. That's the second conflict. Now, with those two I hate to say out of the way because they're important, but with those two out of the way, let's look at conflict number three now. And this is where we need to park for a little bit. And that is the conflict within Jesus. The conflict within Jesus. 
Now, by this point, we already know what he's praying here. We already know the anguish of his heart. And this is the part that, I'll be honest with you, I have struggled. In fact, I was talking to Jamie this morning about this. I have struggled all week with thinking about how to to communicate this to you, because what I don't want to do is to just like organize this into some kind of mechanical academic exercise for us. Because to do that would, I believe, do a great disservice to our Lord and, and to you as well. So I don't normally say what I'm about to say, and if you know me well, you can even recognize more how unusual this is for me. You have to feel this. You, you can't just read it and parse it out and make an outline out of it, though I have tried to give some structure to it just for our sakes to understand. But if you do not feel what we're about to look at, then you are missing it. It is designed to be felt. It is designed to pierce your own heart. And so I'm going to try to help you with that as best I can, though again, I just, if the Spirit doesn't do it, I certainly can't. I want you first to think about and feel Jesus' distress. Jesus' distress. And I want you to notice and meditate on the language that Mark uses here because it is a little uncomfortable. He tells us that Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. And if I understand these words correctly, this is the strongest language used by any of the gospel writers to describe the anguish, the mental and emotional anguish that Jesus is going through here in the garden. You could translate these words greatly distressed and troubled as shuddering uh, in horror. Picture Jesus shaking. And I want you to picture it. Close your eyes, actually. Close your eyes for a moment. Picture it. I'm not kidding. Close your eyes. Picture Jesus in the garden shaking. Picture, picture the look on his face. Have you ever seen someone with horror in their eyes? Picture horror in Jesus' eyes because that is what these words are, are translating. You can look back at me. If for some reason you can't picture such a moment, then listen to the words of Jesus himself and believe him when he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That, that doesn't mean that his soul is sorrowful about death, nor does it mean that his, his soul is so sorrowful that he would prefer death to what he's feeling now. It's simply a, a, a very human way of trying to help us understand how low he is right this moment. Have you ever felt so low you felt like you were in the grave already? You ever felt such weight of grief, of dread, that you feel as if you could die? That's what Jesus is feeling right now. It is taking him as low as death itself. Can you feel it? Can, can you see it? In verse 35, you get one more little detail about how low he's feeling. Mark tells us that once he walks into the garden a little further to pray, he doesn't just stand and pray as would be normal Jewish custom. Normal Jewish custom when you pray to God would be to stand and lift your hands and, and to pray. You see that repeatedly in the Gospels as well as in the, the epistles. Jesus falls to the ground and cries out in prayer. 
In Jewish culture, if you are praying laid out flat on the ground, it is because you are in such turmoil, such distress, such danger, that there is no other place you can be but in the dust. Our maker lying prostrate on the ground. Think about this. Picture it. Some people feel very uncomfortable with this. I mean, how can Jesus be so distressed, so uh, troubled, so whatever it is that he is here because he's God? He, he, he's known this was coming since the beginning. In fact, he came for this very hour, since before the foundation of the world, he had planned to come and give his life as a ransom for many, Mark told us. So how can he feel this way now? And I'll admit, I ask the same question. How can Jesus, the Son of God, tremble in what looks to me like fear? How, how can this be? There's a part of me that can't understand this, and yet we cannot forget in these questions that Jesus is not only fully God, he is also fully man. He is 100% divine and 100% human. And there's so many aspects of that connection, that overlapping dual nature that I don't think we'll ever understand. Maybe not even on the other side of eternity, I'm not sure we'll get it. But there's definitely things within the scriptures I don't understand. I can tell you this, whatever distress he's feeling, it's not sinful. And there's a righteous distress and a righteous trouble. I think, parents, you can understand it, at least in part, that distress sometimes you feel for your children, troubles you feel for them. Unfortunately for us, even in our most righteous moments, we tend to fear and worry and self-reliance. So we take those things in sinful ways. But the, there is a righteous distress, and Jesus is feeling it. And this should not trouble us. In fact, if anything, I'll make this observation maybe a little bit in more detail at the end, but it should come for us to know that when we are in those same moments of great distress, we are not alone. We do not serve a Savior who cannot understand the depths of human despair. He has felt it. He has been there. He knows what it means to be troubled. And these are sources of comfort for our souls in our times of distress and trouble. And we should see them as such. What is he troubled about? Two options I would give to you. Which one I think is right? I shared some of this last Easter, so if you remember anything from that, you will hear it again. Option number one is that he's, he's distressed about his impending suffering and death. And I will say, and, and, and I'm not even quite sure how we're going to do this, but within the next few weeks here, we're going to be in the crucifixion itself. And everything I've ever heard, everything I've ever read about Jesus' suffering before the crucifixion and then the crucifixion itself is terrifying. It's been called the, the worst form of execution ever invented by man. I don't know if it's true because I don't know how one would compare such things, but I, it, it's, it's going to be a terrible moment for him. And so that's an option that he is, he is trembling at the thought of his suffering and his death. And, and for years, that's what I thought the answer was. I have said that publicly to you in the past and in different moments, but it was over a year ago now, I was reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and, and Packer brought up two questions that I had never considered in relation to that particular answer, that Jesus is trembling about his suffering and his death. And I'll give them to you in very paraphrased form. He basically said, so, so we're going to say Jesus is afraid of dying. Why aren't others in the New Testament afraid of dying? I mean, think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. 
the guys are around him with stones in their hand, ready to stone him to death. And what does he do? He looks up and prays to God. He sees Jesus on the right hand of, of the Father, and he's, he's rejoicing as he dies. Think of Paul in the book of Philippians. He's in jail at this point. He's not sure what's going to happen to him. And what does he say to them? I really hope I get out. That's really what I want. No, his response is for me to, to die is gain. He looks at death as the better option. If I could pick between death and going out and living more for Jesus, I would take death because then I'd have Jesus <laughs> face to face. But it's not my choice, he says. I think the Lord's going to let me out to continue to serve him. So are we going to say that Stephen and Paul have a better, you know, they're stronger in the face of death than Jesus is? When they see death, they only see positive. Jesus sees death, he only sees negative. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Uh, he, here's the second thing that, that Packer brought up. He said, okay, so you're going to say that Jesus is trembling at the thought of his suffering and death, but, but isn't this the reason he came in the first place? And I already made that comment or observation a moment ago. I mean, he's been purposely walking toward this from the very beginning, and this is not the first time he's talked about it or discussed it or interacted with it. And all the other times that Jesus has talked about his suffering and death, have you ever gotten the sense that there was any fear or dread attached to that? No, not once in Mark's gospel have we seen Jesus or any of the other gospels talk about or act as if that impending suffering and death was a, something to be trembling about. I'm not saying he's looking forward to it. He's 100% human, but you just don't get the sense of dread that you see here in the garden. And so it doesn't make sense. And after thinking about it for a while, I, I agreed with Packer. I don't I don't think it does make sense. I don't think that Jesus is sitting here in the garden trembling at the thought of the pain, physical pain he's about to endure that doesn't make sense. So if he's not afraid of dying, then what is he afraid of? I think is option two. I think it's the weight of sin and the wrath of God that he's about to endure for us. You know, in Galatians 3, Paul tells us that all of us who do not do everything, underline that word next time you're in Galatians 3, who do not do everything that is written in the book of the law to do, that we are under God's curse. Now we hear that language and it just doesn't impact us. We are under God's curse, his wrath. And when I say that you have to do everything, I mean everything. In God's eyes, righteousness before him is a pass-fail. It's a yes-no. It's a one-question exam. Are you perfectly righteous? That's it. Have you ever in any way violated anything that I commanded you to do or be? Ever. So if you haven't, you're good. But if you've ever even lied once, if you've ever even committed a sexual sin in thought or deed once, if you've ever hated once, been angry unrighteously once, been proud once, stolen once, complained once, not been humble all the time, and on and on and on. If it's ever happened once, then the answer on your test is no. And if it's no, you are under God's curse. His wrath is on you, and this is a terrifying thing. Paul goes on there in Galatians 3 to lay out the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that on the cross Christ saved us by becoming the curse for us. 
that there is a cosmic transaction occurring this day on the cross where God takes the sins of humanity and lays them on his own son. Jesus bears the weight of sin on his own shoulders and then God pours out the full fury of all of his anger against sin on Jesus. He endures every last drop of it so that we can be forgiven. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard that so much that that you're not even moved by these ideas. But I think about Jesus here in the garden And it changes the way I have to see this because here is Jesus, the Son of God in human form, about to take our sin on himself, about to receive the full fury of the wrath of God against that sin, and he falls on the ground in shuddering horror. Do you feel it? Like, can you feel it? Is there any other person you can think of who more fully understands the terrible nature of the wrath of God than Jesus. Jesus understood God's wrath against sin completely and perfectly. He knew everything it entailed. He knew its full horror. He knew its terrible fierceness. And he is dreading it, asking that there be some other way. This is God the Son trembling before God the Father. I want you to let that sink in your heart and soul. How terrible, how terrible must the wrath of God against sin be that even Jesus trembles before it? It's beyond anything we've ever comprehended. Hey, and I'll just stop on this note right here and just say, if you are here today and Jesus is not your Savior, you should tremble You should be terribly afraid. You should be falling on your face before God right now because you are under the wrath of God. Jesus can't stand before it, can you? Come to him. Come to Jesus. He is your only hope of ever being able to be righteous in the eyes of God. He is the only reason any of us can stand before the Father. Come to him. Next, in light of all of that, think now about and feel Jesus' prayer, okay? I asked you to think about and feel his distress. Now I want you to think about and feel his prayer. He falls on the ground and he cries out a very simple cry. Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. Its English equivalent is, is dad or daddy. It, it is It is a term of intimate relationship between a child and and his or her father. I don't walk around just calling people dad. There's only one man I've ever just called dad, and that was my dad. Jesus now falls before his father, and he cries out, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. He recognizes and acknowledges God's sovereignty over all things. And in light of that, he asks boldly, notice, very boldly, remove this cup from me. Cup is a metaphor here. It's referring to what he's about to endure. He he doesn't want to endure it. He's trembling at the very thought of it. And so he asks for another way. And that's okay. It's It's not sin 
to, to ask God for another way. It's not a, a sign of rebellion. It's not a complaint because he goes on to say, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, there's a submissiveness to the will of the Father that's baked into this thing, into his boldness. He, he trusts the Father. He knows that the Father loves him. And, and even if the cup is bitter, and it is, it is the best thing. It is the right thing. And so he will drink it in obedience to and trusting in his Father. Jesus turns to prayer in the hour of his testing to find strength for what lay ahead. And, and, and I can only just draw some conclusions from this that, that have shook me in many respects and encouraged me and convicted me all week long. First, can, can I suggest that at the very least, at the very, very least, what we see here is a proper response to testing. It's a proper response to testing. When I say testing, I'm using that word instead of, of temptation more generally because I think it's helpful because testings come in all sorts of varieties, whether it's trials or temptations. And, and we have to understand as believers, how do we, how do we approach these things? What, what does Jesus even teach us here in the garden about them? You know, how, how do you as a believer handle uh, the, the phrase that we would dread to hear so much, you know, you have cancer? How do you process that? How do you process the words you're going to die from cancer or whatever else? You know, with temptations, how do we as believers respond to those, those temptations, internal, external to sin? See, these are not just pie-in-the-sky kinds of questions. These are everyday questions for us because we're facing this stuff all the time. And two things stood out to me here. Number one is to take the matter seriously. Why? How do I ask this question the right way? I'll just say it like this. Why does Jesus ask the disciples to watch and pray? Not ask them. Why does he tell them to? Now, don't answer that out loud, but think about it for a moment. Is he hoping that in the watching component, they'll see Judas coming and that way Jesus will be able to get away? Clearly not. It's for this hour that he's come. So the watching has nothing to do with like watch, setting up a, a, a guard so we can know what's about to happen. I don't think they're supposed to be watching outwardly. I think they're supposed to be watching inwardly because it's the hour of testing. It's this concept that, that the idea that you got to take this thing seriously, that you, you can't just sit back and, and be sleepy and hope everything works out. No, you have to be engaged here to watch and then secondly to pray. And, and Jesus' prayer if there was, I mean, he prays several times and they're all great examples, but if there was ever a great example for prayer, particularly in terms of how we approach our own hours of testing, it has to be this one. I mean, think about the four concepts that are baked into his prayer, the concept of adoption. Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that because we are now sons and daughters of God, we can come to him and say, Abba, Father. We are told to call God, the creator of the universe, Daddy. And we feel very uncomfortable with that. We really do. Because you, know, you start to pray and you're like, Daddy, that's not, that's not formal enough. I need to be like, you know, Heavenly Father. That's fine. I, I'm not trying to call you out on, on your terminology. But do you understand how real your adoption is? If you are a believer in Jesus, then the God of creation has made you his own. You are his son. Not in a... a uh, 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 just a, you know, honorary way. 
You're really his son. You're his, you're his daughter, not just with a, a, a sticker to put on the wall. No, you're really adopted. And he wants you to come to him as dad, to love him and view his love for you in that light. This is, this is amazing. We'll color everything else because you, if he is our father, if he is our daddy, do you ever think he would bring a testing into your life that you can't handle? We insult God so much by the way we view such things, thinking that somehow he's done something because he doesn't love us. If he only loved us, he would. What kind of insulting language, thoughts, and attitudes is this? This idea of adoption, the idea of sovereignty that he knows uh, perfectly and, and, and can act powerfully. I mean, when Nathaniel or Hannah come to me and ask me for something. I may love them to the best of my ability, and I may have certain abilities to help, but I don't know perfectly, and I cannot act in every situation. You have a father who can. Some of you didn't grow up with a father at all. You now have a father who can, who knows perfectly and can act powerfully. You see the concept of boldness. We're supposed to let our requests be made known to God. Sometimes we pussyfoot around this thing as if we don't want God to know what we really want in a situation, and so why? Just tell him. Let the cup pass. Remove it. That's what I'm asking. I'm asking because I don't want this or I do want that. Come in boldness, but at the same time, come in submission, recognizing that in the end, God knows and will do what is best. This always brings me back to, to you know, Matthew 6, Jesus' comments that, you know, which of you, being evil, if your children came and asked for bread, would give them a stone? None of us, parents, none of us would ever give our children anything less than our very best. And yet we constantly just assume God won't. Sometimes you're going to come to him and you're going to ask him, heal, spare the life, return the job, and he's going to say no. This is not a prosperity gospel. He's going to say no. And you're going to drink the cup of cancer, and you're going to drink the cup of death, and you're going to drink the cup of unemployment. And sometimes you're going to come with sin struggles, and you're like, Father, just remove the temptation. Make, it not, make me not even want it anymore. And he's going to say, no. Drink the cup. Drink it. Sit there in your inability and know that only I can help you. He's too good to give you a stone. In your limited ability to understand and my limited ability to understand, it may look like a, st a stone and feel like a stone and taste like a stone and smell like a stone, but it's bread. I may not understand it, but it is bread. My Father is too good to do anything else. And sometimes we just have to drink the cup in faith. But here is the beauty, folks. We don't drink it alone. Because Jesus has already drunk it. He drinks it through us. He drinks it with us. We have to fall back on him and remember that our strength is not ours. He is the vine. We are the branches. And apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. I can't even drink the cup on my own apart from him. How many times have we gone into the hour of testing and fallen asleep? We weren't watching. We weren't praying. We've fallen asleep only to abandon him and run off into failure and all of these things. 
This should change the way we view those moments, folks. I'm, I'm way out of time. I'm sorry. It, it should change the way we view these times. Jesus, if nothing else, is giving us a, a wonderful example of how to handle the hours of testing, and they will come. They will come. I'll give you just one more. It's kind of connected. I'm skipping some other stuff, but you remember what the word Gethsemane means? It means oil press, right? It's a place where the olives are taken, pressed, so the growers can get the oil. Um, you don't get the oil out of the olive until it's pressed, right? Until it's crushed. So isn't it ironic that the place where we see this crushing of both Jesus and the disciples occur is in Gethsemane at the oil press? I mean, I'm not saying there's any greater or deeper significance to that. It just stands out to me that you can't see what's on the inside until those moments of pressing come. And, and that first conflict, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, the most visible one, wasn't really the big, wasn't really the deal. That was just the, the rock. That was the stone pressing. It's in the next two conflicts that you see what's really going on. It's that conflict that puts a conflict within the disciples' hearts. And you see how they fared. They serve as a terrible example of how to handle the hour of testing. They fail. They fall asleep. They're not watching. They're not praying. And they flee. And you see Jesus serve as a wonderful example. He passed the test. And so while I don't always know the purpose of testings that God allows into our lives, I do know that it always shows us who we truly are and where our trust really is. And as such, we can at least embrace it for that. Folks, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm way over. I... I want to encourage you to just go home this afternoon and take a few minutes. I mean, take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, as long as you want, and just open up God's word to this section and just sit there and feel it. Feel it with Jesus. Feel the anguish. Feel the pain. Listen to his prayer. Feel your own anguish and fall on him. Will you bow your heads? Father, these are deep waters, and we are the first to acknowledge that we cannot even reach the depth of them. They, they are more than we can handle. Jesus, we see you here, perfectly God and perfectly man, in utter anguish. And we're reminded that while we may never face the kind of trial you yourself are facing, we face our own trials, and you can sympathize with them. You have been in the garden. You have felt the weight. You have felt the pain. You have watched, and you have cried out to the Father, and he sustained you and gave you victory. These men had no power over you. You let yourself be taken. The cross has no power over you. The grave would have no power over you. Sin would have no power over you. You come out victorious from it all. And so in our moments of trial and testing, when we feel like the weight is too much, Jesus, drive us back to yourself, knowing that you have drunk the cup before us and we can rest now in you and in you, we can take the pain. It, you've not promised us a life free of pain, free of troubles and temptations and trials. That is coming, but it's not today. And so help us to remain faithful with what you've given us at this time, knowing that we can rest in you, find our strength in you. In Jesus' name, amen.